0: Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. On today's show, we're discussing how law enforcement officers embrace the Constitution, And I honestly don't think we could have a better guest for today's conversation than Chief Tim Longo. If I can shorten his decades of public service to a few sentences, I have to highlight his law enforcement service, which started with the Baltimore Police Department, where he served in three out of the nine districts. He served as a district commander, as the commanding officer of the special investigation section, and as the chief of staff to the police commissioner. Tim Longo has served as a consultant for the District of Columbia, the South Pasadena Police Department, and the Denver Police Department. He was the Chief of Police for the City of Charlottesville until retiring from that role in 2016. He then joined the faculty of the University of Virginia's School of Continuing and Professional Studies to create a master's degree in public safety. That program addresses the issues and the challenges of 21st century policing and safety. Since 2019, He has served as the University of Virginia's Associate Vice President for Safety and Security and Chief of Police. He also serves as an adjunct faculty member at the law school, where he teaches police use of force. Tim Longo, welcome to Consider the Constitution.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be back in Mr. Madison's Montpelier and with uh, my colleagues uh, around the state in law enforcement, so thank you.
1: I want to first start with the preamble to our Constitution. Some might say that parts of the preamble are in conflict. So, for instance, we have these lines to establish justice that might be perceived as being in conflict with to ensure domestic tranquility or to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. How do you see those soaring aspirations in the context of the law enforcement organizations
0: you've led? I don't think I don't see them in conflict at all. Quite frankly, I mean, keeping in mind as I just mentioned to my colleagues from across the state in our discussion this morning about the preamble, it really was the purpose behind our constitution, uh, and then also the cases that would subsequently interpret its meaning. You know, I see the role in law enforcement in many cases as guardian of the constitution, and I think the preamble establishes the path forward for how we were to accomplish that. Justice means different things to different people, whether it be fairness, equality, ensuring that outcomes are consistent and fair and consistent and commensurate with law. And and that provides a framework upon which we go about the duties and responsibilities of establishing uh, and sustaining safe neighborhoods and safe communities, So I don't see those terms in conflict with each other. I see them as a complement one to the next.
1: I find that a fascinating idea and one that I haven't considered before, that law enforcement really is critical to upholding our U.S. Constitution. I think that's the work that we do at the Center for the Constitution here at James Madison's Montpelier is how do these ideals that are outlined in the preamble that are laid out in the Constitution, how are they protected? And how do law enforcement serve the Constitution in that way?
0: I often tell police officers, regardless of how long they've been in this work, everything that we do, every policy that we developed, uh, every training scenario that we construct, every policy that we draft and then ultimately implement, have its origin in our Constitution in the cases that have interpreted its meaning It's so important to always look back on why it is that we do what we do and how we do it. And I think the Constitution informs that work. A colleague of mine told me some time ago, he would always emphasize at a meeting or training of his staff, they would start by pledging their allegiance to the flag. Remember, we used to do that in grade school. And we've gotten away from that. And he said one of the reasons he did that was it was a a reminder, a visible, very meaningful reminder that. Everything we do here goes back to what this flag stands for. It's a symbolism of our of our nation and ultimately our constitutional values. And we as law enforcement are the custodians of those values. And it touches everything we do, just everything we do.
1: That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, law enforcement is the custodian of those values in the Constitution. And it doesn't matter whether you're at the federal level, state level, Or the county level, this is really about kind of a collective, it sounds like.
0: Yes, I don't think it matters. If you wear a badge and you took an oath or made a promise to support values that are so critical to this nation's well-being and ultimately our survival, it doesn't matter whether you're a local, state, or federal law enforcement officer. Your work is informed by the standards and values of our Constitution.
1: Tim, with your experience serving in and studying so many different jurisdictions, from big cities to small cities in your current campus community, do you see ways in which the Constitution addresses issues across American jurisdictions, or is there a need for it to be implemented differently according to the community that is being served?
0: I think a little of both. I think policing, regardless of what you're doing, is always a balance of the government's need versus that of individual's the government's need to ensure safety and security and enforcement of law balanced with the rights of citizens, but there's a counterbalance. And that counterbalances the expectations of the community served by that law enforcement agency. I often tell officers, the Constitution is the floor. It isn't the ceiling. And there are things that the Constitution says we're able to do that are consistent with constitutional values. That doesn't mean we should be doing them. I mean, there are things that we do in policing every day, policing strategies, if you will, with the best of intentions. Sometimes we need to step back and ask ourselves, even though the constitution says we can do this, is this, whatever this happens to be, making our community safer? Is it helping us build relationships with people we serve? Is it instilling confidence and trust between community and police? Because if it's not, it's time to step back. Acknowledge that the Constitution says this is okay, but it may not be what this community wants or needs. And there's a variety of examples I could give you, but at the end of the day, they all go back to strategy and strategies that police agencies deploy in their communities for a variety of different reasons. And if at the end of the day, the community isn't safer and relationships between police and community aren't stronger, then perhaps we need to rethink those strategies.
1: It sounds like there's a need for a dynamic, a conversation, a dialogue between the law enforcement agency within a community and then the members themselves and kind of figuring out, as you said, this balance of what are the community needs, what are the officer needs, how are the officers serving the community, but also upholding the Constitution. And in your work, it sounds like you've done a bit of that Can you speak a bit more about how you find that balance? And as we referenced earlier, that's something in the preamble, too, is how do you find ensuring safety of everyone while also respecting the rights of individuals?
0: Certainly one of the ways you find it is you open the door up to the community to come inside to learn about what policing is and the policing strategies that are available to help make communities safer and to test those strategies against community tolerance. We're in difficult times and have been for the past several years because there's been such a strain on police community relations. that, Frankly, if you study history, um, we're foreseeable. And that's unfortunate because it's going to take a considerable amount of time for those wounds to begin to heal to the point where people will begin to want to have conversations with law enforcement. Ideally, in a perfect scenario, in a perfect world, the answer to your question is relationship and dialogue and understanding. But because of the strain that's come about over the past several years, it's going to take some time to get back to that space. And and meanwhile, uh, it really is up to leadership, profound leadership, courageous leadership, intentional leadership. You know, leadership is a verb. It's it's an action word. It requires that you do something. And that something is to sometimes take people in a direction that they may not be willing to go or that they might not understand is worth going. By saying, for example, you know, we, there are things in in our organization, that we've done over time, that we have felt, and the law has acknowledged as being lawful strategies, have not yielded anything. Consent searching is a perfect example where lots of police agencies across this country, lots of officers on a daily basis, will use consent, voluntary consent, as a mechanism by which to go about their work in a variety of different cases. And as long as the consent is voluntarily given at the time that it is, under the totality of the circumstances in which the consent is given, then the law is said that that is permissible under our constitution. Some states have made those requirements more strict. Some have made those requirements to be knowing, not just voluntary, although our constitution says just voluntary. But at the end of the day, we got to ask ourselves, what are we getting from those consent searches? Are we making our community safer? Are we getting that gun you used last night in the homicide? Are we getting evidence and fruits of crime that relate to the safety and well-being of our community? Or are we just creating more distrust between police and community? And I think if you really thought about it and were willing to be courageous enough to ask that question and to really analyze that practice, at the end of the day, what I think you'll find is you're not getting much value. It's not making your neighborhood safer or your community safer. And it is driving a wedge between police and community. But it takes profound, courageous, intentional leadership and action word to get to that place where you're willing to take that step, which might oftentimes not be viewed as very favorable within the rank and file of the organization and maybe with even members of the community. But it's an example of a strategy that I think from time to time, I think to myself, are we really getting anything from this or are we just continuing to exacerbate this problem of relationship with community and that we desperately need to recover from? We need to retrieve that relationship and restore it in in ways that allow us to achieve that balance and better understand the expectations of the communities that we serve.
1: You said my favorite words, courageous leadership. That combined with, as you referenced, public policy, there is very much a role for law enforcement to be courageous leaders and for public policy to play a role in that. Can you speak to how you see public policy and leadership playing a role in shaping the future of this dynamic between law enforcement and communities?
0: I think the easiest way to respond to that question is to say that I don't know that you can have effective public policy without courageous leadership. A lot of the best public policy we've seen throughout our nation over the uh, centuries of work that we've done is because a courageous leader has said we're moving in a particular direction, sometimes in the face of adversity. And that action That action step, that first step becomes a practice, becomes a part of the organizational direction, the community direction, ultimately the government's direction by way of public policy. And I think it comes about by a courageous decision that somebody made oftentimes uh, in adverse circumstances, circumstances that are not comfortable, not popular, not a good place to be, but it required somebody to do something to bring restoration and healing and from that comes policy. But I think it starts with not just smart people. We got a lot of, a lot of smart people everywhere in academic institutions and in government and communities and advocacy groups. But courage is something different. And it's an absolute requirement, I think, for the implementation and sustaining of effective public policy.
1: I want to turn the conversation to this concept of qualified immunity. This is a term some of us may have heard of, But can you give us further clarification on what it means exactly and how it has or hasn't served public safety?
0: Well, let's start by what I think it is. is. I'm Not quite the academic that some of my colleagues are at the law school, but I am a practitioner. And as a practical matter, where qualified immunity arises is normally at the completion of what's called the discovery process of a lawsuit. Normally, the non-moving party in the lawsuit will go before the court on what's called a motion for summary judgment on the basis of qualified immunity and basically say to the court, you know, judge, there are no material facts in this case that are in dispute. We believe that we are entitled to judgment as a matter of law. But when the issue is summary judgment on the basis of qualified immunity, what we're really saying is there may be an allegation of a constitutional violation. But at the time this allegation, the facts that give rise to this allegation occurred, the law was unsettled the law was not clearly established. And this doctrine of qualified immunity comes about for exactly that reason, when there's a constitutional violation, but the law is not clearly established, such that the officer has been put on notice, on fair notice, that what they did at the time that they did that would violate our constitution. So what it is, it really doesn't change the underlying law. It prevents the case from going to that next level, which is the trial. So if the court finds that the law was not clearly settled at the moment in time that the incident occurred, then the officer's entitled to qualified immunity as a matter of law, not because our constitution, our constitution doesn't say anything about qualified immunity. It's a judicially created doctrine that protects the government, in this case, law enforcement from being held responsible from a situation oftentimes that oftentimes did unfold rapidly where the law had not yet been clearly established, where, for example, the Supreme Court had not spoken clearly, this is the law, and if you run a it, you run of the Constitution. So the argument around qualified immunity is if it's taken away, really the, the, the consequence of that is then the officer now has to stand trial. The defendant uh, who had made that motion will now no longer have the benefit of that and will have to stand trial and be held accountable, perhaps, for their actions. But it doesn't change the underlying law. It merely takes away that shield, if you will, that protective layer that would have prevented this case from going forward to trial. So that's the practical application of qualified immunity and how it comes about.
1: And if I understand correctly, a law enforcement officer may take action or do something that it's not clear if that's protected by the Constitution or not. But it's important to have this qualified immunity so that the officer is protected because there wasn't that clarification.
0: And that's basically why the doctrine, and my my interpretation of why, is that the doctrine was created, in fact, for that person, where the law was not clear, where an officer may not have been placed on fair notice that what they were about to do would run afoul our Constitution.
1: Your officers are often charged with protecting free speech, and that speech can often be offensive and provocative. How do you guide your officers in protecting speech, regardless of how the majority of a community may feel about speech?
0: I'm not going to be hypocritical in my thoughts about the First Amendment and law enforcement. I think we have not done our due diligence in training officers as well under the First Amendment as we do in other aspects of our Constitution. Police officers are trained very well and know very well Fourth, Fifth, Sixth Amendment Provisions of our Constitution. Those are what I refer to as the constitutional criminal procedure aspects of the Bill of Rights. The Fourth Amendment protecting against unreasonable search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment, more often than not, the privilege against compelled self incrimination and the procedural safeguards before a person in custody is interrogated or asked questions about the crime for which they are believed to have committed. And then the Sixth Amendment, certainly the right to counsel and the right to a speedy trial, the right to a fair trial. All those pertain to our criminal justice system and known very well to police officers and police trainers. First Amendment, I don't think we spend enough time training police officers on what is protected and what isn't in ways that I think are helpful to them. You know, more often than not, we're sending officers into events uh, I often refer to as expressive conduct Others may say protest or demonstration, but nonetheless, there are large gatherings of people who have come together in a particular place for engaging what they believe to be their constitutional right to express themselves, to freely exchange thoughts and ideas, even those that might be offensive or even hateful. And knowing where you go from protected speech to not protected speech is really important and fundamental. And we train officers on the tactical aspects of dealing with demonstrations, wedges, skirmish lines, basic crowd control techniques. Where we don't, I think, do enough is making sure that officers understand what it means to give rise to an imminent breach of the peace or what it means to incite hostility in others. Where does the First Amendment protection begin and when does it end? And I think we need to do a better job at that. Look, the the Supreme Court has been pretty clear. There's really no such thing as hate speech per se that necessarily is no longer afforded First Amendment protection. Uh, but here's the reality. Today in this world, we are in the midst of a moral conflict where at some point in time, as law enforcement leaders, as government leaders, we need to say this, this speech has crossed that line. This particular speech has risen to that level where hostility is imminent and be able to intelligently take action um, that's going to have consequences. We're going to find ourselves in courtrooms litigating our decision making. But at the end of the day, I want my community to be safe. I want our community to feel safe. I want our students to feel safe and to know that when we go into the midst of, of these discussions around expressive conduct and speech, that there will be a low threshold for that behavior which crosses that line of imminent a breach of the peace or incitement of hostility and to be able to act quickly and safely but not in a way that compromises our Constitution. We really need to do a better job, I think, in law enforcement, training up officers to understand the Constitution, especially the First Amendment, much better than they do.
1: And the First Amendment is one that many of us are familiar with. The five freedoms in that amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of press, speech, assembly, and petition. As you mentioned, this is a quite nuanced Amendment, though, in terms of what rights are guaranteed and what's kind of in the gray area, we learned on a past episode with Jade Ryerson about freedom of assembly and just what constitutes how you can assemble in what spaces, what spaces you might not be able to assemble, what that assembly looks like. And so it's not just black and white. It's not clear necessarily. And it sounds like what you're speaking about is the situations where okay, maybe we need to think about how are we responding to this? And these situations, not only in terms of free speech and assembly, can present harmful situations, not just to community members, but also law enforcement officers. And so ensuring the peace of communities, but also ensuring the safety of our law enforcement officers is critical when we think about how are we responding and protecting these rights.
0: I absolutely think that's the case. But oftentimes in in police training, we think about Preparing officers to go home safely, preparing them to create environments where citizens go home safely is a question of tactic and technique and oftentimes equipment. This is more academic. This is more cerebral. This requires a deeper understanding of what it is and why we're there. Why are we there? Why why is it that we're called upon to enter into these discussions, to enter into these environments? It's to protect the constitutional rights of the people who are there. I mean, we've all taken an oath to protect, to uphold, to defend the Constitution. And oftentimes, officers only here enforce the law. I'm here to enforce the law. You're here to protect rights. You're here to protect individual rights. You're here to effectively balance the government's interests against the interests of the individual. And the only way that you can do that successfully, in my opinion, is to understand the why. And oftentimes the why becomes so apparent in application when you're applying those principles and how you draft policy, train cops, enforce provisions that are associated with or oftentimes agreed upon provisions that are associated with these demonstrations to take place. But it all starts with effectively understanding what the First Amendment protects and what it doesn't. I don't think it's appropriate to say what I fear, but what I anticipate is that as we continue forward in a very difficult time. For what we're seeing around the world and the discussions that are taking place, the rhetoric that is happening in communities, just on college campuses, on public streets, in the public square, and the impact it's having on the moral fiber of our nation may cause the courts to reconsider what it really means to incite hostility in others and how that relates to the kinds of demonstrations and the kinds of rhetoric, the kind of speech, if you will, that we're encountering today, which is not only creating disruption in communities, but raising critical issues around policies that communities and laws the communities create around what will or will not be tolerated at these various types of events, which oftentimes involve expressive conduct.
1: You address an important point, understanding the why of all of this. And you're absolutely right. Talking about all of this right now, for example, is very cerebral. Being in the moment, responding to a situation is a completely different scenario and I don't have a background in law enforcement and I can only imagine what it is to go into a situation like that.
0: The balance that I refer to oftentimes will result in action. It results in some decision-making process that has to take place and oftentimes that decision-making will come about very quickly. And an officer will either be given direction to take action or will take action based on a set of circumstances that are put before them. And it may often be the case and is, in fact, often the case that that decision making will find its way into a courtroom and will be litigated retrospectively. And a determination will be made whether or not that action or that decision making is consistent with or contrary to our Constitution That's an awesome responsibility that's placed on an individual or collective body like a law enforcement agency. It's hard work, but at the end of the day, it's about protecting rights, but it's also about protecting lives. And being able to see when that speech is getting to that threshold of imminent lawless conduct that may get people hurt. And that's hard because our courts in one respect have said, well, it can't be speculative. It's got to be imminent. But when you're trying to make a decision in real time, sometimes that's hard. But at the end of the day, the chips fall where they may. And we just have to understand that as we sit back in in the luxury of our homes with our feet up, watching the television, reading the storyline in the, the media or internet or newspaper, wherever it is you get your information from. It's easy to retrospectively criticize and evaluate the action, but it happens in real time and it's so hard and it's particularly becoming more difficult around these First Amendment issues, where, as I said previously, we just don't do enough to prepare officers for, in my opinion.
1: And as we wrap up our conversation today, can you speak a bit more about how you see law enforcement, particularly those like yourself who are really kind of leading this effort, how do you connect the why of what we do, the why of what's written in the Constitution, down to the practical application through the training when that officer is in the field, when he is facing a situation.
0: One way in which you do that is you open up the doors of this great place. We're just hundreds of yards from here. Our Constitution was built. The architecture of our Constitution took place, and you have discussions like you and I are having now with leaders in law enforcement about the why and you use as many examples as our law has given birth to these cases where the courts have looked at our constitution looked at a set of facts and said these violate these don't and take those same fact patterns a scenario-based training in law enforcement is so critical and we have the basis to do that simply by the various cases that have come before our courts and have been litigated and to take what we've learned from those cases and build them into scenario-based training that can be introduced to law enforcement, not just in places like where we are here today at Montpelier, but in roll call rooms and classrooms across the Commonwealth and around the nation. No longer is it death by PowerPoint. These are the elements of a burglary. It's let's walk through some scenarios and some cases where officers have made really hard decisions that were later evaluated by the courts and see what we've learned from those cases. And from that, understanding the why, understanding why the court gets to the place that they do is so important when training officers around the law, and particularly complex areas of the law.
1: Chief Tim Longo, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today, for speaking with our listeners, and for being here to train our law enforcement officers. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Been a pleasure as well. Thank you for the honor.
1: And thank you all listeners for joining us today on this episode of Consider the Constitution. We hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our next episode.